Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the production advice website aimed at helping you get the best out of recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And with me, as always, this week is my co-host, John Tidy from reaperblog.net. Hi, John. How are you doing? Hello, everyone. Doing great. And we also have a special guest this week to help us with the topic, because this week I want to talk about one of the, the biggest questions that people have, which is about mastering for clubs and for when DJs are your clients, because it's the one area where there is, well, I wouldn't say it's the one area, but it's certainly an area where there is still a huge amount of pressure on mastering engineers to master super loud, even if they are actually a fan of dynamic music and would prefer not to. My guest is Luca Pretolesi. Luca, welcome to The Mastering Show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this show. It's great to have you. And we're going to dig into the this topic of, of loudness in clubs and also how you work as a mastering engineer in a minute. But I just thought I would talk briefly about why this is such a hot topic, <laughs> pun intended. And we can get into some of these maybe. I mean, it, some of it is to do with the noise regulations in clubs when, you know, if there's a club that will lose its license, if the, if the music goes too loud, they could well have the amps in a locked cabinet somewhere and nobody can get there. So adjusting the gain structure is not something that's accessible to the DJ. Um, I think quite a bit of it, in my opinion, has to do with the software that DJs use, and we could possibly talk about that. And of course, a lot of it is also to do with the style of the genre, the way the sound of a lot of these EDM and, and dance genres has evolved over the years. And I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, what Luca thinks about all of those ideas. But what it all boils down to is that the concern amongst clients and mastering engineers is that if a song isn't loud enough, it simply won't get played, either because it will sound unimpressive after the, the thing that the, the person previously listened to, or that even if they like the track, it won't fit into the set along with the rest of the material. I get this a lot. People, yeah, yeah, we, we we get the whole dynamics, you know, balance dynamics, this, that, and the other. But what do I do when there's this this pressure? And I mean, honestly, it's not something that I have a ton of credibility to speak on because it, you know, super loud mastering is not something that I do. Uh, you know, I, I've talked often about how I prefer not to do that. Whereas Luca does have a lot of experience in this area. Um, having said that, the, the reason I asked him on the show is I saw him do an, a talk for the AES recently. And I was really interested in what he was saying about how he approaches this whole topic and the, the methods that he used. So I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation. But that's far too much talking from me. Luca, maybe you could just uh, briefly introduce yourself and give us an idea how you got into mastering and how you work. Right. Well, thank you. A little bit about myself. I, I've been into music for my entire life, uh, but I will say that in the past 15 years that developed my techniques to be an hybrid between a mixer engineer and a master engineer. And let's keep in mind that 90% of my work, it's dance music. Um, and if it's not dance music, they're coming to me for something that it's not dance music, but they want to have that dance music feel in some way. So I do like pop that has dance music in some way, um, uh, maybe drums or fusion of dance music. <clears throat> in general, be involved in this music kind of forced me through the years to be able to be in the middle. And uh, so I think a song uh, from a DJ point of view 
um, a lot of my friends and colleagues, they're like drummers and guitar players and in the way they're thinking mastering, they're thinking mixing, they are thinking from a guitar playing point of view. In my case, I think really as a DJ. And then I start as a young DJ. So I develop from there. Um, I, I do, when I'm saying I'm hybrid between mixing and mastering, because it's really a case by case scenario for me with my client. Uh, my long-term clients, uh, we kind of develop a system that over time make things faster and easier, and I'm able to be really helpful to them. But some of the youngest one, they don't have a clear idea uh, on expectation on mastering or where they're asking on mastering to do something that is really mixing related. So it, it, that's kind of like the, the, the way that I approach uh, my job, especially if it's not a long-term client, that we need to kind of create a, a, a line of communication, understand each other. It's really set up expectation based on the, the quality of his music. And need to be extremely direct and transparent. One of the biggest uh, problems uh, that I'm facing, well, that's, a, that's, that's like a problem that's going to be forever, I think, it's reference tracks. So... I'm lucky enough to be involved on big songs. So when I work in a song, um, currently there is a really cool song that I'm involved and extremely proud about. It's Diplo and Miguel uh, song, part of the Diplo new album. The DJs, the producer, they like the song, like to use my song, my, my work on the song as a reference. They really don't have a clear idea as far as like the, the enhancement or the level of um, involvement on the mastering side versus the mixing side versus the production side. So sometimes they're coming to me with songs they are not mature enough, they're not ready, they're off uh, as far as the sound design, they're off as far as arrangement. They have a lot of phasing issues, a lot of ringing issues, a lot of problems, and they're thinking that mastering will magically fix all that. And that's one of the biggest problems, to really explain that's also why I had to expand a little bit into STEM mastering to do a little bit of fixing before mastering, if it makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. In that case, you would prefer to get stems from the client to be able to achieve that for them in the you know, mixing slash mastering stage rather than sending them back to do mix revisions. Uh, do I have that right? Is that, based, is that because you've tried it before and they, they kind of, it gets confused and you go around in circles? That's correct, Ian. But the one thing that I'm always explain to them is I don't solo anything. Even if, if I receive four stamps or 45 stamps, I'm always, my mindset is as a one. And I, I listen as a, with a stereo mastering mindset, with the freedom that if I have a really bad clipping happening because a snare is made by three snares, they're like killing my bedroom in an unnecessary way, uh, instead of do surgical or do like dynamic EQ, I just simply lower this snare 2 dB and that will make my life easier. But even if I do that, I'll do it always thinking as a one. It's just more like, essentially it's more like going into the song with a surgical approach without getting outside of a mastering mindset when I'm, when I'm listening is a one thing. Uh, so that's one. Uh, second one, the reason of stems is for the type of application. So uh, especially touring DJs, 
and uh, now with Coachella, another festival, bigger, bigger act, they need to have a master that translates pretty much everywhere in the same way, but there's a different version. So when we do the TV version, uh, we had um, Diplo, uh, Jimmy Fallon last week, um, we had to export stamps um, from the match, the master, but with a certain technical things like leave background vocal minus 10 dB, do certain things on the track. So doing that and having archive of stems allow me also to speed up the process. I'm not the only engineer here at Studio DMI. Uh, we are uh, three engineers. We do a lot of work every year. And then in creating this system allow me to be a little bit more flexible and help a little bit more. I also do stereo mastering and then that case, uh, it's it's traditional approach. Now, because the type of music that I'm I'm exposed and I have to deal with, these are certain things that are part of the aesthetic and the part of the style. Um, and over time, uh, style change evolve. And what happened? There's a certain songs they have a success. They have a certain approach. Also, even even on mastering, on even tonal balance, that those songs they create like a waves of all their songs try to stay on the same path as far as like how the song needs to translate. How about the mid range versus the low end? Uh, there was a moment everything was super bright. There was a moment that the style, because again, a couple of songs, it went more like warm and controlling the top ends. A moment it was everything that has to be super wide. So it's just there's a lot of like. Uh, trend and style on dance music. They're coming from big songs. The big songs create a, like a wave of other songs. I want to dig into that in more detail in a second, but just while, if we finish up the topic of stems, I'm just curious, are you, so if I have a, I occasionally do stem mastering, it tends to be because, yeah, like you, as we were saying, if, the, if there's something where I get the sense that maybe it's not going to be efficient to ask the mixer to adjust something, you know, it's going to be faster and, and more effective for me to do it, then I might request the drums separately or the guitars or whatever it is. When I do that, I'm the same as you. I set it up so that I'm hearing exactly the same as the stereo mix, and then I just process that one stem. When you're doing that, do you actually would you actually root stems out of the box through analog gear and process them separately and then recombine them when they come back in? Or do you just kind of tweak levels and stuff and then it's still a stereo mastering chain for the actual mastering processing. Yeah, that's a great question. It, well, I have a two different approach. If if I'm doing a purely technical uh, correction, I don't need to have benefit from summing or anything else. I might stay uh, on the DAW and just get out as a stereo, go through my gear, capture, listen post conversion, just do my final touch in the box, and I'm done. Uh, but in certain cases, I'm actually take an opportunity for tone and for um, a little bit of saturation, a little bit of separation um, to use my my summing system, which is uh, essentially uh, 32 channel divided on two summing devices that have a different tone. Um, so sometimes, and and that's specific also on the style of music. If I if I do uh, this current now of like 90s house music that is coming back super hard. I really feel the benefit of full production in the box with 
you know, Roland TR-909 or 808s, everything in the box, then getting a little bit of the color of the analog gear with a little bit of separation, a little bit of crosstalk even if it's necessary, and then go back in the box. So in that case, it's just a decision to get a little bit of tone and, and vibe from, from summing. If I do um, a super clean, um, like, wrap trap uh, master, and then I want to retain everything the way it's been done from the producer with the same intention, then I'll go fully, you know, stereo. Yeah, very cool. Okay, so, I mean, I introduced this talking about the issue of loudness, and I think it's, I mean, there's, there's a load of interesting things to talk about in the, the, the field of mastering dance music and mastering for clubs, but, but loudness is obviously the big topic. And you mentioned reference tracks, so I'm guessing your point is your clients come to you and say, okay, I want it to sound like this. And when they say that, they include the loudness of it in the sound. What do you think is is driving this? Do you think it's fashion? Do you think it's it is to do with just the practicalities of DJ mixing? What do you, what do you people tell you is the thing that drives that desire for loudness? Yeah, it's a combination of things, right? So first of all, most of the time, the producer slash DJ is also the uh, sound designer, the, the the guy that arranged the song, and the guy that mixes his own song. So his level of attachment to the song is different. I think because the culture, when you're actually producing a song, most of the time you are A and B against other songs. Most of the time I recommend guys, please lower the reference tracks, you know, uh, take it down, take it down to minus 18. I, it just during the production, don't try to fight against a song that is super loud. You know, you're going to make a lot of decisions as far as clipping and other things. So I try that. But then in practicality, a lot of those guys, they, they're working on the road. They're making a, a demo. They just want to have the demo to sound loud as the next track they're going to play on the set. Uh, so and they're they're okay to compromise dynamics for that, which is um, I totally disagree. And I build my own techniques to try to find like a middle ground. But we can talk maybe later. Uh, so for them, loudness is part of the aesthetic of the mix. Now in different style of dance music, this problem is more or less. I will say that in the R&B dance music. This is not a huge problem. And they appreciate dynamics. Um, they understand uh, how nice it is to have like a certain depth and have a lot of um, space between the average level, the peak level. They appreciate that. Uh, but in certain styles, especially tech house, uh, house music, uh, techno in general, um, yes, they there is an almost like an aesthetic where Every sound has to be in the front and, and with, with separation and use a lot of sidechain compression to do that. But everything's almost like feels has to be always in the front. One of the biggest issues, and on this one, I understand that compression is the key, is breakdowns. So a lot of songs, EDM songs, house songs, uh, future bass, they have a breakdown. So the arrangement is typically an intro, a build, a drop, the drop essentially the chorus, going into a breakdown, and the builds into a pre-chorus and a chorus again. Now, those breakdowns where now we're going from pushing really hard to a lot of dynamics in a club for a DJ that play in front of like 3,000 people, 
it's getting a little bit uncomfortable if the breakdown is too quiet. And I understand that. So uh, raising the low level information up on the breakdown means that the pads, the chords, if there is any type of uh, arpeggio, they will come up. So that's it's, it's something that actually works really well. But that's essentially is bringing low level information up in a part of the song that listening on my studio environment, that's absolutely fine if it's super dynamic, but at least in a club, I understand. You have like two, three hundred, a thousand people in front of you. They're going to essentially going over the music, um, not be able to listen any details on those breakdowns. So that part, it's compression and is used almost as a part of the production. Now, what I'm more concerned sometimes is compromising uh, transient response and overall groove and vibe just because in order to get a certain level, uh, they're okay to do multiple set of limiting and clipping. So in, in, that, in that sense, I think I find and I build my old techniques over time uh, to be able to kind of like be in the middle, to have a translation that feels um, right and then as a standard level that is pretty good for them. But at the same time, we are not compromising the musicality, if it makes sense. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And I mean, that's something that I recognize as well. The same thing happens with, I mean, I've, I've mastered a fair bit of electronica and, and EDM over the years, not so much in in recent years. But the way that I like to deal with that is actually to use some some automation, you know, and you make it subtle so that nobody can tell where the transition points are. But rather than adding more compression for the loud sections, I will just manually lift up the quieter sections into the compressor so that they're closer in level to... The, the loudest sections and that way you can I mean it's it's ironic because I'm always talking about dynamics but I'm actually making the song less dynamic when I do that but it's a it's the macro dynamics it's the long-term dynamics not the you know not the peak level crush the not the transients like you're talking about that's correct do you do the same thing I do the same thing and most of the time I deal with stereo stems they have reverbs and they have panning. So what I usually do, I'm staying away from stereo compression. Most of the time I do mid-side compression and, and, and most likely I'm compressing the mid more than the sides. And uh, I blend a little bit of dry uh, on the side as well to make sure that I'm I'm leaving the natural decay of, of certain elements without crushing and just take away the depth. So even on compression, I try to do it in a way that is affecting what really matters instead of compromising everything else. Um, and as far as like the way for me to make it is more musical, it's going is use VCAs on the way out. So essentially, I use analog compressions and and if I use different compressors and I do like an SSLG uh, light SSLG on drums and I use like a dangerous compressor on on my on my master um, I like to use VCA on my DAW that my average level of compression will go up and down essentially uh, pushing level out of my DA. So that way, whatever stay in the DAW that's been set is more static compression uh, or of limiting. But then when it goes out, it's more forgiving as far as the analog gear. Then I'm, I'm, I'm literally do automation using the VCA on my DAW. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, okay, so you mentioned that kind of gain structure a little bit. That's, I know that's something people will be interested in. It's something that I'm curious about. 
but maybe that's getting ahead of ourselves because the the thing that I heard you talk about on the the AS live stream that I thought was really interesting if I understood you you were saying that basically there are kind of two steps to your mastering process there's one step which is all about analog gear and color and sound and groove and and vibe yeah and and when you when you've got that you've got something that as far as you're concerned is is correct for streaming and probably is not as insanely loud as some people might think you know because because one of the things that i hear all the time is oh edm needs to be minus four lufs it needs to be minus six lufs or whatever it is um and that's the stuff that concerns me you know i've said over and over again i don't have a problem with people mastering their music super loud if that's what they they feel it needs and that's how it sounds right to them my concern is when people think they they need to do this thing whether they like it or not and it that has to be successful so what i think i heard you saying was that you're Streaming masters can be uh, less super loud. I mean, oh, yeah. they're, st- they're still loud, and they're probably louder than what I do. And then you have another stage where you can make them even louder for for club versions. Is that correct? That's hundred percent correct. And it, so, first of all, we build a system now that always, always, for approval, we always send our dynamic master and the loud master, and we're very specific about the purpose. So, yes, we say that's a dynamic master. And it's we, we literally put like bullet points like streaming and uh, we basically tell where they should, should use the dynamic master. Of course, it's a recommendation. Um, ultimately, they make a decision, but we do the dynamic master and the loud master. Sometimes I even do uh, multiple passes. They have a different. I'm making different decisions on the dynamic master versus the loud master. Loud master is for club use only or festival use only, um, where essentially I give what I think have the best translation for what they're going to do instead of clipping the Pioneer 900, which is the DJ mixer that all those guys use, um, and they go totally red and, and they make things worse. I'll get borderline um, and I do, you know, no through peak. I just let it go and I know, but I'm very specific. Guys, this is like a club master. And then when we check on, on Spotify, for example, yes, it's a confirmation, the dynamic master, it actually sounds better. And there's also a big benefit on streaming versus club use. You don't have an A and B literally mixing one song into another song where you feel the need that your song needs to sound tiny bit louder than the previous song. You don't have this. So streaming, it's almost give you like a reset time to just listen as a listener and, you know, not necessarily constantly try to a and B against other songs. So, yes, so it's exactly the way I approach this is providing uh, two masters. Every time is dynamic and loud. Only in certain cases, again, it's more like R&B, pop, dance music. I, I get, I'm finding myself comfortable, the client is comfortable to work on a dynamic master only uh, because even on... Uh, live venues, they're, they, they're really going to appreciate dynamics, especially when you have uh, 90 BPMs with a lot of uh, soft, long decays and, and you want to have a clear uh, separation definition between the transient of the kick and the kind of like decay of your bass. So yes, in that case, it's purely dynamic if we can. That's, that's fantastic to hear because that's something that I've kind of asked as a question several times over the years, you know, is why not do it this way? You know, um, 
back when I've been showing my age, but when I, you're talking about nineties dance music uh, coming back, that was when I first kind of, you know, was really getting into music and, and working in the music industry. And back then you'd have white labels, which were, you know, it was a separate vinyl pressing for DJs with long intro and outro grooves specifically designed for mixing, right? So that they could beat match and, and blend them over, you know, several minutes sometimes. Um, and I've always thought, you know, especially now when you don't, you know, we're not delivering masters on, well, actually that's a question. Are, you, are your clients, do they release stuff on CDs? Do DJs use CDs or is all of, is everything digital at this point? It's, it's everything digital. Uh, now on the biggest release, uh, we kind of prepare to have any type of format, including vinyl and CDs. Uh, most of the major labels work that we do, uh, Warner or Sony, we have a requirement and we provide everything. Regardless if this is going to go on uh, on vinyl or CD or not, we, we, we provide every type of format. Well, on CD, because I know it's not going to be a DJ use of CDs anymore, I still recommend to go with the dynamic. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, I feel more like responsible myself on something that's going to go on the history of music and I, you know, I prefer to give the best version of uh, of the actual song for something that's going to be catalog or something's going to be there, you know, for ages. Mm. Yeah, no, that that's so great to hear because that that makes much more sense to me. Um, because yeah, if you've got a digital master and that's what the DJs, you know, there's no extra production cost. I mean, I guess there is slightly more administration work, um, you know, different RSRC codes and catalog numbers and all this kind of stuff. But I always figure that's that's what labels are there for. That's that's their bread and butter is keeping track of all of that stuff. So Exactly. Um, <laughs> okay, cool. Um, if if you're up for it, I'd like to talk very quickly about the, the kind of nitty gritty of, because I think you're, I'm right that you use mainly kind of analog processing and stuff. If you're doing that first pass where you're going for the, it's all about the sound and the vibe and the the character of the music and you're not particularly concerned about level right um when you're bringing it back i mean i guess you you, you gain it down to minus 18 or wherever it is to send out to your analog gear so that it hits way where it should be and then when you bring it back in are you clipping your converters are you doing that kind of stuff or is it all super clean how do you structure it right. uh yeah great question uh, so yes i work on zero dbvu regardless every song that we prep everything we prep regardless we stay in the box we go out of the box it's always zero dbvu just also to have presets and other things that can apply um so that's like standard now we go out uh in my case it's based on the style a lot. So I do a little bit of stage of limiting using, I like to use the Better Maker limiter as an interesting, cool function of blending to do mid only, little bit of mid only limiting and touch of clipping. Um, and I kind of uh, share this with my uh, AD converter. So I get into the dangerous AD plus and I might touch a little bit of clipping on the, the way we call drops, so all the, the chorus of the song, mm-hmm. and then we VCA, automate, and gain a little bit of edge room for the verses. So if I do any type of house song that like vocals, most likely is on without drums, on kind of like uh, pads and piano, and I try to really make sure that I'm not squeezing too much and pushing too much low level information up. I don't want to get any type of limiting on clipping uh, without drums. So it's it's mostly for certain impact on the, on the drop and also because I'm not a huge fan of oversampling 
on limiting the box uh, or clipping. So I, I like to get a little louder, reduce a little bit um, dynamic range on the way in so I can do less uh, in the box. And how much of that clipping that you're using would you say is part of the sound? Is it part of the sound or is it more of a technical requirement because you know that you want to achieve that high level because that's what your clients are asking for? Because lots of people tell me that extreme loudness is needed to get the sound right for this kind of material. But I think what I'm hearing you saying is that it's more about the compression and subtle tweaks to the stems and the EQ and the, the tone of the gear that you're using. And that actually, a lot of the time at least, you could achieve that same sound even without that extra level if the clients were happy with it. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there is a two different approach and I use both. If I go for Loudmaster, actually my goal is to avoid the sound of the clipper, if it has a sound, and gain level using maybe multiple clippers or a combination of clipping and limiting um, in a transparent way. And I want to give a perceived dynamic feel even at higher RMS level. Uh, now, if I go for clip sound, which uh, works really well on current rap, like a lot of trap, a lot of bass music, uh, tech house, in that case, I need to go through the process of mixing into a clipper or stem mastering into a clipper. And, and I feel that way I can automate the clipper to just squeeze and just cut the, the top of the mountains <laughs> and the peaks uh, or uh, massage and just use VCA automation just to go from clipping to out of clipping and back on clipping in certain parts. So I do use uh, mid-side clipping, so where I clip just the mid, and I use a combination of clip the converter and uh, my own plugin, the Diamond uh, Lift 3, that allow me to clip the mid, and then I follow by a limiter and then an additional clipper just, just to maybe do like 1 dB. Cool. Interesting. I mean, just so that people listening kind of know what we're talking about here. Uh, after I saw your AES, um, you were doing a demonstration with a, a Tiesto remix, yeah. I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I went out and found it on, on YouTube. And if I remember rightly, the stats on YouTube, it would have been at about minus eight LUFS. Yes. Um, which, you know, on the one hand, that's really loud. <laughs> that's an integrated value, right? So that means yeah. that the quiet section is pushing up to minus six. Yeah. On the other hand, it's a track with plenty of space. It could definitely take it. You know, it, it's like, obviously, the more dense, the more intense the sound gets, the harder it is to push it really hard without distortion, all the rest of it. Right. Um, would you say that's kind of typical? Do you think that's... The thing that interests me is that's only a couple of dBs hotter than I would probably master something, right. choose to master something myself, you know, without any kind of... If I was just left to my own devices, which makes me feel really optimistic because I feel like yeah. we could probably ease things back a couple of dBs over the years, you know, and, and then we'll be in a really good place. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true. I, I think w one of the the most important element to me to make a decision how much I need to, I, I can push, it's about transient response. It's about the envelope, how the bass sustain under the kick drum. Do I have a very snappy, dry type of mix? 
I'm able to do that. I'm able to push a little bit more. There's a certain decision. It's about arrangement too. Uh, can I process mid side and have the side free from compression? Um, so those are the questions for me. And that's how now over time it's go, it's very organic. So it, it goes in autopilot as far as like for me, how much I can push, but that's kind of like my, my, my mindset. Very cool. So once you've got that master that is effective, more or less an analog master that, yeah, is, is purely about the sound and the what suits the material and the rest of it. If you then know that you're you're going to need to do an even louder version for club playback, how do you go about that? And how much harder do you typically push it? Yes, yeah, no, great question. Normally, first of all, I start my process always listening post-conversion. So I go through the gear to the console, come back into the DAW, listening on my DA post the DAW. So I don't want to have any surprise. I really want to listen the clipping on the converter. I don't want to have surprise later. So I'm always listening post. So this means I can also do some testing of some additional processing post if I'm going to get a little louder. Okay, so if I, I'm very happy with the master and I'm trying to get a little louder with a, but I don't want to compromise the quality. So sometimes I'm looking, okay, if I have spikes, if I have any type of fast transient that is hitting uh, my clipper and then, and, and then I'm, I'm, I'm squeezing dynamics because I have some spikes on the kick drum, on this and there. Uh, I might, if I work on stems, um, <clears throat> do a mix of things to get louder. First one is if I can pull my kick down FDB, that's a huge improvement as far as like regain some headroom and be able to squeeze some extra uh, level just because I'm, I'm, I'm reducing a little bit of my kick drum. Now, again, based on the song, if, if I'm able to do it and then now I'm able to push a little bit louder. The second one is if I'm gonna get louder, instead of put a lot of weight on one single piece of gear or clip really hard my converter or uh, do clipping and limiting post uh, my converter, I'm gonna divide the weight on different things. For example, if I'm doing uh, my summing mastering and I have my drum summing, um, I might do a little bit of limiting on my drum summing side and just leave the music untouched the way I'm reducing some dynamics, but I'm, I'm leave the music kind of floating on top of the, of the drums. So those like micro little things that I do, capturing again for a loud master. And then obviously when I'm in, I might do a combination of clipping in and limiting um, to first reduce those spikes and do a little bit of limiting to kind of like pull up a little bit the low level informations, but it, it has to be gentle. And my goal, it's always to retain or stay very close to the intention of the dynamic master. Um, so I'm not interested on uh, compromising the, the song just to get a certain number of, you know, on my meters. So that's very important. Um, Recently, I'm trying to also work with a phase. I find that um, make sure that everything's in phase 
uh, helps or some way um, we are, I'm dealing a lot with like a bass line being side chain with a kick drum and sometimes some producer they don't realize that they're using plugins they don't have a compensation now the entire bass line is a little off so this means the actual side chain with a the kick they shoot essentially gain some edge room because now the kick drum is pushing the bass down like 5 dB on that point is not actually doing it. It's doing a little bit off. So I want to make sure that every stem is perfectly aligned. So there's a lot of micro little things that I'm doing. That's really interesting. And actually, you reminded me of a question I was going to ask, which is a lot of mastering engineers I talk to these days tell me we couldn't make the masters any quieter if we wanted to because the mixes are already coming in super hot. And I'm just curious... Can you say, is there any kind of trend or does it completely depend on who the producer is, who the artist is, what the material is? Yes. If the producer is also the DJ that will perform the weekend, that want to test the demo, most likely I'm going to receive a rough master that is very, very loud, but not in a good way. Uh, and I, So loud, just the numbers, but then completely destroy any type of transient, lost so much. So... I need to kind of first, I need to say, hey, please stop listening to your own master for like a week if you can. Don't listen it. Listen my master as a first, listen as a listener, not as a performer. Like, and then just please detach yourself from your own rough master. And when I ask, so how you do your rough master? They say, well, I just, you know, put on, I don't know, Pro L and just, and just pull the, the threshold down till... I look in the meter or I play against another track is loud enough. But then, yeah, they're essentially kill kick drums, snares, hooping hats, all that. In dealing with loud rough masters, that's it. It's, a, it's, it's what it is. I mean, we rarely I'm getting um, maybe a pop production, R&B production, where I'm getting like an actual mix rough mix and they say go for it do your the master the way it makes sense for you most of the time you say hey this is our like temporary master that's the one that we are using that's the one the label approved um if i decide to go lower i need to have a conversation and explain why <laughs> so yeah yeah um but th they will presumably give you a, a, um the mix without that final limiting so that you can yes. do your master oh, yeah, and achieve yeah. that yes, similar level yes, in a better yes. way yeah oh yeah and one things i do now i ask to please 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 export a 30, 32 bit floating files i want to make sure that i'm uh, for gain stage purpose and other things, they sometimes they're they're sending stems they're like overly processed or just clip in a bad way. So I want to be able to regain uh, re regain dynamics if I can. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know if thirty two bit float came up in our stem mastering conversation, but that that definitely yeah that would one hundred percent be a requirement. Um, I was actually curious about the uh, the timeline from uh, receiving the stems or the the song to master and then delivery, uh, right. and and any like revision process. How long does that take? Got it. Uh, well, the here at Studio DMI we have um, kind of general agreement with clients, kind of like an open relationship with us, where 
we prioritize them because they're like time sensitive on album releases or like show on TVs or other things. So they have a priority. And then there is a one time only client say, hey, you know, I want this master. And then Jacob, they run our uh, schedule. You look and say, okay, I think you, you should get this in like in 10 days. We should get this in a week. Um, and usually, I'm trying always to, to give like a couple of days before, they have uh, the right for two revisions, that's it. Um, and they can keep going for the next three years, but it's gonna be a cost involved. Uh, a reason why is because uh, unlimited revisions open the options and then you become co-producer. Now, now say, hey, what about if we try this? What about if we try that? So we need to give some, uh, or another option that we offer is instead of doing two revision, we do one revision, but we do it together. So it's like a Zoom, uh, we stream quality audio, um, they are with me, and then I do, and that's purpose is, hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm a little confused. Um, I might have your, can I have your opinion? What about if we go in this direction? we're going to provide, we're going to create any problems. If I go brighter, what's going to happen now with the reverb? So in that case, say, okay, let's jump on Zoom. You have, we have like 30 minutes. Let's go for it. And then it's equal to two set of notes. That sounds great. Are you using um, audio movers for the... Correct. We, we provide audio movers. Uh, we work on Dropbox. So they, of course, they can listen real time. And also when we stop, uh, just to make sure they can just go on Dropbox, uh, pull the actual file, play there, and then give us the you know the green light, and then we're we're good. We are taking photos of the gear. Uh, we store everything as far as like the the recall, um, even different versions. Sometimes if we do V1, V2, we might have different uh, recall for V1, V2. So we keep everything. One thing I was curious about is, and I mentioned it briefly in the introduction, was DJ software, because I had a conversation with the guys at Serato, I think it was, the software gain structure, you know, is messed up to begin with because everything is peak maximized. Yeah. And there's no headroom above that. And I was saying to them, if you loudness normalized stuff instead so that super loud stuff was taken down, you know, I mean, I appreciate DJ's aren't able to have detailed conversations with the owners of the club about gain structure and about the gain on the amps and all that kind of stuff. Right. And maybe some of them, they're super focused on the music and they're not, not incredibly technical. So they rely on the software to do this stuff for them. But it seems like such a simple change that the guys making the software could, could do. And I'm going to contact them again, but there, there was no kind of interest from them in doing that. Is that something that you've come across? Do you have any kind of feedback on that? Totally. It, it doesn't help the, the way right now the DJ software, well, Serato, um, it's one, the pioneer system they're using to kind of arrange the USB um, uh, devices to play on CDJs is another one. Yeah, I kind of, I don't like it. I disagree. I don't understand why they don't pay attention of this. Um, similar issues, honestly, is on the DJ mixer. So the kind of industry standard is the Pioneer uh, CDJs and the Pioneer mixer, the 900. It's very unclear when you go technically into RADs. So they, a lot of my clients they say, yeah, I play in a club. And then I was, uh, it was not loud enough. So I would just 
pushing the game into red. And when you look into red, it's just like two LED. Um, but some of, some of those guys, they, they play tracks, they're like peaking a minus 0.1, and they're pushing 3 dB into a, a, a master bus of a DJ mixer. So there's a lot of confusion right there. There's a lot of problems. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a real shame. I'm going to try reaching out to them again and... Um, I don't, maybe you know this is just a, a thing that will evolve over time, but yeah. I think feel like that's another that would be a really positive step um, because currently you know it's the, the hardware and the software is actually working against the artist, but you know right. meaning the DJ and making yeah. it harder for them to do to work with more dynamic tracks. If everything was matched for the, versus loudness and there was just more peak headroom available, it'd be far less of an issue. Yeah. That's very true, and I want to bring another experience. So I live in Las Vegas where. We have clubs every corner, and most of my clients, they have residency in Vegas. So I actually, on purpose, I go to clubs to listen my masters in a club system. Most of the time, I'm disappointed because what they do, somebody will go to the club when they do the initial installation. They set up limiting in a way that doesn't translate well at all with the current uh, music, so which is another problem. Like there is like limiting setup on clubs where slow attack, slow release, ridiculous. So now now we are getting tracks that are very um, loud again because the DJ is the one that loud, and then we are borderline clipping where now the DJ what he does he push three dB on the mixer, hit the limiter, uh, that's like slow attack, slow release, and just kill and change entire the envelope in the drums in a really weird way. Second one, and then I'll stop with this, is like this thing about super wide, all right? Okay, super wide, very, very wide. And then I like to do like very wide open side on the lower mid range with dynamic EQ. I have my own techniques and that's fine. But then they're pushing, and not my master, I just want to be clear, master that like wide in the wrong spot. Now you have 150 hertz uh, out of phase side information hitting subwoofer in a way that just can handle, like really weird. So there is a lot of work to do uh, to set up club system or festival system in a proper way. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting because I, mean, I would imagine most subwoofer systems are mono, right? Exactly. So if, if exactly stuff right. that's in antiphase 100 hertz, it's just going to disappear, right? So it's going to completely change the, it, exactly the, the right. of it. Exactly right. But now that's another point. So because they want to be impressive on those clubs, what they do, they have sub on the floor in mono. Now they have side speakers next to the DJ. And I'm not sure if there is a, they did a good job about the crossover point between, the I don't know, 100 hertz to like 500 hertz. And then you have the sub on the floor. It's very messy. Another one that is kind of crazy to me, it's set up stereo speakers on festival probably for uh, delay compensation, I don't know. Uh, festival like Electric, Electric Daisy Carnival in Vegas, which is the biggest festival in the world for dance music, they essentially run stereo just next to the stage. Left and right speakers on the stage is stereo, the rest is mono. So now you have uh, middle of the floor where you have like, I don't know, 25,000 people listening mono. Literally. So there is, <laughs> there is no reverb and there is like a build with kick and bass and hats and the rest is gone. So there's some issues there. Inter interesting to see if this will develop in more knowledge and understanding, you know, um, to be able to represent the music that we work so hard to make sounds right, you know, on the live venues. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess the good news is that there's lots of room for that to improve. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm curious what kind of reaction you get. I mean, obviously it varies on the genre and, and the, the client, but are you finding yourself under huge pressure to, do you get lots of people coming back and saying, yeah, it's great, but we want it louder? Are you being asked to do it even louder than you think is sensible or is that not so much a conversation these days? Um well, it's it's based on relationships. So we long-term clients, I feel that we kind of set up the bar, um, we raise the bar, and we keep going. And usually there's trust, there's understanding. With some of the my actually best client, I think I'm kind of the final stage of define if if loud enough for for club, if it's dynamic enough for streaming, how this world works. So there's a trust. Now the biggest problem is for uh, it's bad to say, but for indie producers, they have crazy expectation and they're skipping some steps in their thinking. I mentioned this at the beginning of our conversation, that mastering will magically do everything. So sometimes they won't have a, a loud master for club use, but the production it's done in a certain way where loud master means bring to the surface so many issues. That which is another uh, point that I would like to expand just a little bit, <laughs> which is every problem that is hide into the song, phasing problems, ringing pro problems, uh, even, even like offbeat, like kick and snare and hats, and when you start to really squeeze dynamics, you bring so much information from the bottom up. Um, then the producer now says, oh, wow, now I feel the song has too much reverb or like it's like it's a little bit um, uh, it, it's literally piercing on a certain area. Yes, we are bringing up everything to the surface. So in that case, I need to have a conversation. Um, I want to try. I try to be respectful, but I say, "Hey, you you might you might want to go back into the production. You might want to rethink about the the baseline you're using. It's it's from a sample pack that has issues. So you're using a base you took online from a sample. It was already damaged as some three layers of bass on one, and it's out of phase. That's something that I don't want to fix on mastering. So that's the point. So it's a lot of exponential result from the quality of the mix. Um, and also, as far as like loudness, if it's for club use, I feel a great sounding mix. Uh, I can tolerate, I can get louder without too much artificial versus a bad sounding mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it's the same throughout mastering, right? It's it's all about communication. It's all about offering support and reassurance. And you know, I mean, ultimately, you have to come up with a result that people are are happy with. But it again, it makes me feel optimistic because you know, w one of the things you were saying earlier on is that sometimes less experienced mixers and producers, um, artists might come to you, and you're providing the advice and the guidance. Um, and when you take that along with the fact that, you know, you're mastering some of the biggest name acts in the world, they're selling in huge numbers. Everybody is super happy. And actually the masters you're doing for streaming, at least, are only maybe a couple of dBs louder than I would say is right in the sweet spot. I mean, clearly, if this is a taste thing for everybody. Right. But I, you know, I feel like we could be moving in a good direction here, you know, where over time more and more people 
hear what you're doing, what we're all doing, hear the that it sounds the way they want. It it's you know it's a musical result that they're happy with, and trust us all to just back off things a little bit. I don't know whether you agree with that or whether you think we're, it's just going to keep getting worse. Yeah, I, I actually agree with you. I think as far as like streaming and and the the application, so it's almost like I'm doing. I'm I'm providing ma master for two very different purposes. So the club DJ, they play a certain style of music where part of that style in the club to hit in a certain way, it's not necessarily the same type of translation that you want to have on on Spotify, on on Apple Music. Now, um, one thing's interesting, I think, moving forward is the Dolby Atmos standard eventually will help stereo mixes uh, translation on the same streaming platform, if it makes sense. So if you have in five years from now, every song that is being, it's spatial mixing on Apple Music, and now you go and you listen just the, the regular stereo master, do you really need to have the stereo master to be like 15 dB louder than, than the Atmos? You know what I mean? I don't think so. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is something that I've been talking about. I did a, a YouTube video um, recently, and I've been I've been talking quite a bit, finding out a ton about Dolby Atmos. And in fact, we had Emray and uh, Mike Hillier on either last episode or the episode before talking about exactly this. People have often said to me, "Why isn't there a standard for loudness?" And I've always said, "Well, you can't do that. It's art. You can't tell people how loud to make things." But actually, Dolby have come in and said, "Well, look, these are the technical requirements of the Atmos format." Right. You need to not go louder than minus 18 or it's going to hit the la the limiter too hard and it's not going to sound good. Right. And people are, they're going along with that and they're getting great results and it is actually working. So yeah, I'm the same as you. I, it's interesting because I have, I had Atmos question mark written on my list of notes here and I thought, well, I, we won't get into that, but it's fascinating that you bring that up as well because I feel exactly the same way. Yeah. So we have a, yesterday at DMI, we have four rooms and we just finished our Dolby Atmos room um, launching in a couple of weeks. It sounds fantastic. It's, it, and I learned a lot. I, I don't do, uh, by the way, I don't do Dolby Atmos at all. There is another engineer here. Robert Guzman does like only that. And it's great. But one thing I'm learning is appreciation, again, uh, of subtle dynamics and things. Obviously, you have this crazy separation you can get, which is fantastic. But as far as the standard, not worry about loudness and leveling. It's, it's fantastic. Now, the stereo versus Atmos, if the goal is to try to make the transition that even on the Atmos mix, she respect the stereo mix, um, not reinventing the production idea. Uh, well, that can be applied also as far as leveling. So that's totally fine. And, um, and it's great. So another conversation we had here is how about when people that actually gonna on purpose mix in Atmos, because majority of the mixes now, they're kind of conversion. So mixing stereo, uh, stem out, uh, and then, you know, uh, do the, the Atmos mix. Well, when you start mixing from, you know, from real beginning in Atmos, that's going to be interesting because now might be the case in the future where might be the only standard and that's it. That's great. Uh, the binaural is going to be amazing and fantastic. Uh, or the concern about loudness will go away. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a really optimistic uh, note to finish on. So, Luca, thank you so much for um, sharing so much of your 
knowledge on, on this with us. Um, it's, it's been great to have you here. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ian. Thank you, John. It was great to be with you guys. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about what you're doing, um, where's the best place for them to find you online? All right. So I'm extremely active on Instagram, uh, which is Luca Preto Lazy, one word. Uh, or online, studiodmi.com is our studio. It's kind of like a point of reference for everything that we do. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thanks, John, for uh, helping us out and mixing the episode as always. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell other people about it if you think they would like it too. And leave us a review at themasteringshow.com forward slash review to help other people find the show. And thanks for listening.